Hi everyone, it's Tony Nash, back with Plugged and Unplanned, and very excited today because I have someone who I would suggest has made a bit of a name for herself in the Australian landscape, in, in business, in social entrepreneurship, uh, in, in giving back, and it's inspiration to many, Ronnie Khan from Oz Harfus. Welcome to the program. Good morning. Lovely yeah. to be with you. Yeah, great to have you on, on board. And congratulations, Ronnie, because you have a new book out there. And I we have it on our website, Ronnie Khan, A Repurposed Life. And quite a striking cover. And congratulations. Well, thank you so much. It's a very strange place to be in. I never anticipated writing a book, nor that I'd be in this kind of an interview talking about the book, my life, anything that you're about to throw at me. <laughs> yeah. So so that means that does that mean you have to kind of extend your business card? Because there's probably a lot of, you know, Ronnie Khan and it's you know event manager, um, social entrepreneur, CEO, public speaker, and now you've got to add author to that as well. It's it's like, I've kind of given up the, the business card. It just seemed easier because there was no place for anything in any yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. So, so I guess um, for, for most of us, we want to probably know what what was the origins of wanting to write the book. Is it to, to try and, um, you know, lay down what you had, what your organization has accomplished? Is it more you? Is it more Oz Harvest? Is it more... Um, you know, inspiring others to get off our butts and get going. What, you know, where, what, what were the origins of the, of the journey? So really initially, the, the very initial book I was going to write was going to be about what we need to do to change the world. Right. And the minute I sat down to do it, I realized that is not the book that was going to come out. I co-wrote this book with my daughter-in-law, which in itself was a total experience. One, because I wanted to keep her as my daughter-in-law and <laughs> keep my son happy. But the minute we started, it became very apparent. This is my story. And the reason that it emerged the way it did and the reason that I decided if I'm writing this story, it it is me naked, vulnerable, and exactly as I am, because I think there's such a, there is, it's not a, it's the wrong word to say stigma, but but most people look at other people who have done something and think, oh my God, they're special, they're unique. I could never do that. And I realized that really by sharing my story, perhaps it would inspire other people to find whatever it is they are meant to do and understand that this wasn't, this has clearly been my destiny, but certainly wasn't what I set out to do. I've stumbled and bumbled my way through life. And when you find your passion, you'll end up doing something perhaps extraordinary or perhaps special. And people come to me to get mentored. And I figured, what if they, I can't reach everybody. What if people could read this book and leave knowing that they could do whatever it is they meant to do. Mm. And do you and have you had that um, impact on some of the people that you've met over the years? Have you been able to kind of share your story, and then all of a sudden they were able to um, kind of navigate their way into that 
into, I guess they're in a path, if you want to use that word, and then go, got it, I can now do that? Or how's that kind of played out? Yeah, so over the years, that's exactly what's happened. I've done lots of public speaking. And, you know, in public speaking, you've got a limited amount of time. So you can only do, so So in the book, there's stuff that I've never spoken about, which is why I use that word raw and naked, because I'm seriously raw and naked. But no doubt that through the years, I've had people come back to me and say that that shifted and changed my life, that transformed me, that gave me a new window to look at myself, a new prism, a new lens. And and my hope is that the book will do that because there's just a limit to the amount of people I actually come face to face with. And I figured really it was time for me to offload. But also if it could have that impact on one or two or three people, well then that's powerful. Mm. Yeah. So I think from my, my, I mean, having started Booktopia as well, um, when I started it, uh, I had no idea that it was going to end up being $200 million plus company. You, you just don't know those things. It's a, it was a little side project, started on a budget of $10 per day. And one thing leads to another. You keep following, um, you know, the, the, I won't say the breadcrumbs, but I guess you keep um, kind of um, meeting the needs of customers and that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Kind of feels like even though what you is very different, what Oz Harvest has done from the little of that I know about your organization. I, and I did watch the, the uh, that uh, documentary that you guys food fighter. Yeah, put together. That was that was terrific and very inspiring too. Um, so anyone who's listening to this, there is a documentary on on Ronnie and and Oz Harvest and and the mission and the, the challenges, etc. So do both buy the book, buy her new book that just has just come out and also, you know, track down that, uh, that documentary is definitely good viewing. But did you, do you feel like in the beginning you were already um, from when I read the, you know, the cover of the book and the bit, bit of the description, you, you were already in the food business and yeah. you, you saw from your own business, the wastage that was going on. So, yeah. but did you, did you know how big it was, big the problem was when you kind of first started to kind of going down that those corridors? I love how you said you followed the breadcrumbs because in my case, I literally followed the breadcrumbs. Absolutely no idea. I saw waste in my life, in my business. I was creating waste every day without realizing it. Had no idea of the scale of the problem. Thought, oh, became this rogue food rescuer and thought if I could just stop food waste in my little world, that would be so cool because that's where the food waste was. And only as I started and as I began, as I started saying to this business over and above the catering world, do you have food? It just started escalating. This was totally a side project. This was a little passion project little pet, I thought I'd be doing my event world forever. And this took over. How how privileged and, you know, blessed am I that this did, but no idea. Once I started, I knew it was big, but I had no idea of the scale. You know, again, like you, started with my own money, just 
making sure that my my vehicle could work and then it slowly built up and now you know it is a 20 million dollar organization with both national and global impact how do you fund that does that is it through all through donations all philanthropically funded or our right. own revenue streams some of which we lost completely during COVID. so we're literally trying to recalibrate we yeah we for the first time ever we got some government funding which which has fundamentally shifted and changed us because of covid and hopefully which which allowed us to roll out extraordinary new programs in mm. following the impact making sure that what we did would answer the need and so when you when you give when you kind of are on the road and you're getting the food to the people. Um, what's your sense of not gratitude or maybe entitlement, gratitude, um, you know, just heartfelt appreciation? Is it is it a long term relationship with the same people that they they then expected every day, like like uh, a newborn expects to be fed? How how does are you involved in a transition program? Are you there as a stopgap? How does Oz Harvest make its best impact? It's such a beautiful question. You know, there are organizations that we've serviced for the last 17 years. What's, what's tragic now is there are a million new people, a new cohort of people who've never needed food, who wouldn't even and didn't even know where to go. Because, because of COVID. They, because of COVID, and they'd never considered themselves either in need or even on the border of being on need. But to, to unpack your question, we service organizations that, that offer multitude of services, but food is often the magnet. So there are long-term relationships because by us providing food, and there is enormous gratitude and enormous understanding that we've changed the landscape around the food those people eat. If you have a small budget, you can buy bread and jam. If you don't have to spend your money on bread and jam and you're being given fresh fruit, vegetables, meat, dairy, one, the people you're feeding become healthier. But two, you can offer and spend money on different services and redirect your funding. And so I think that's been the fundamental impact two fundamental impacts as Harvest has made on the organizations we support. The better quality food, which means better health, and the impact of redirecting significant funding. In some organizations, we save them between $75,000 and $100,000 a year, which means they can redirect that. I'm going to ask a question on behalf of the listeners. I, I think I know the answer from what I saw on the documentary and the, the little I know about Oz Harvest, um, you're, you're more of a conduit uh, between to, uh, between the where the food is and to the organizations who are on the ground. Um, and, and so you're not necessarily face to face with the people that need it. You're, you're kind of helping to make sure that that food is getting to those organizations. Is that the, the best way to describe it? It was until COVID. <laughs> Absolutely. We were the middleman 
delivering, making sure that surplus food doesn't go to waste because $20 billion worth of food goes to waste just in Australia and making sure that that food got redirected to humans, to people first and foremost, and not go to landfill. During COVID, what shifted and changed? Some charities closed down. They were manned by elderly people. They couldn't function without volunteers. Those people found themselves stuck at home with no ability to go to a supermarket or to get food. So one of the programs we immediately instituted was cooking fresh meals. Now, we'd made meals just as part of a beautiful um, team building event, which happened many times a week, but maybe we'd make 500 meals a day. We ramped up to making, over the COVID period, we've delivered over 400,000 ready-made meals. We worked with hospitality industry. We call them our hospo heroes. Some of the chefs that lost their jobs some of the businesses that couldn't function but could come and cook or cook for us. And we now deliver food directly to some people. A lot of vulnerable people were put into motels or were taken off the streets because we were worried about that the pandemic would just decimate people who didn't have somewhere to go. And they got rehoused. And we deliver food to those places. So for the first time ever, we actually are having direct contact. But until then, you're absolutely right. We delivered to the organization that then serviced and delivered out mm. to vulnerable people. Wow. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a credit where credit's due kind of question. I, I mean, Booktopia, I have quite a, quite a strong hand on, on the direction and the insight to the book industry and e-commerce and how 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 it's going to kind of make its way through through the world and its growth. But um, as the years have gone on, of course, I've attracted more and more uh, amazing and talented people. And, and thankfully today, I'm less involved in that. And a lot of ideas are coming to the executive from the, from the managers, from the, even the grassroots of, of the 200 plus people that work here. Is that some of these ideas that you just want, the one that you mentioned, that redirection, was that you sitting there going, right, this is what we're going to do now. And everyone kind of, all your minions are running around saying, yes, we've got to start doing, we're going to do, I don't know how many meals we're going to cook, but it's going to be a half a million worth of meal. Like, or is that coming from underneath you now and you've got talented people who are helping you and you're just the face and you, everyone goes, oh yeah, I was Harvest, Ronnie Khan. <laughs> how does that work? Probably a bit of both. I mean, I have extraordinary talented people around me now. Absolutely, there's a management team who make me shine. There's no doubt about it. Um, but I am still the vision of the organization. I am still absolutely directing what do we do during COVID? We do whatever we can to get food out. So if it means we have to cook, if it means we put mobile, mar um, mobile markets on the road to get to remote and regional, absolutely, that's what we do. But I have got, we encourage leadership we encourage ideation and making sure and any idea that is viable that will make a difference that, that it's all about the impact and i have and hope that i've empowered my team but absolutely i'm not involved if a wheel breaks off a vehicle i'm not involved in the day-to-day -day operation unless it's a shift in direction mm -hmm. um 
but much like you, I am, as I say, I have 200 staff also, and I'm surrounded by extraordinary talent and just so grateful and so want to develop that leadership for that very mm. reason, because, hey, I'm, I'm silver haired <laughs> and it's time, you know, to, to be encouraging all this leadership. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so one of the things that um, uh, that they talk about in business is win-win, win-lose. You got to have a win-win situation. Uh, for Booktopia and for me, I've I've kind of um, uh, developed that concept to double win-win, and and that means for us and for Booktopia, Topia needs to win. We need to make money. We've got to be profitable. Um, our customers need to win. They want to get books at a good price at a at a fast at a fast rate. Uh, the suppliers need to win. We want to know that they're making money and our employees need to win um, because if they're not uh, being remunerated and they're being worked as slaves or overworked, then if all of those groups aren't winning, it's an it's a non-unsustainable model. In, in the philanthropy world that you live in, um, is there a tendency for, for you to attract, I won't say workaholics, but I'd say obsessed employees that um, just are going above and beyond, and they're they're heroes, uh, not because they not because they want to be the hero. That's just their 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 mindset and their motivation. But do you need to actually kind of take it? because when I can only assume sometimes when you when you're in a corporate environment like we are, um, you know, there's a start and a finish, and people there's definitely people who work 60, 70 hours a week of their own choice because they're they they've got a, their own uh, ethics that, that but what what about in philanthropy and do you do you have to manage that you have to tell people go home take take a week off tony i had to take a week off because i wasn't role modeling what i needed my people to do i'm passionate i could work 24/7 because it's just so you know you're making a difference money is not has never ever been the gratification and the interesting thing is the people I've attracted and that they're the best. I've got corporate, you know, people who've escaped the corporate world because they're looking for their purpose and passion. And you're a hundred percent right. They are so passionate that I literally had to take time off because I realized that they were getting just burning out and they still burn out. But I think what's really fascinating about the difference between me and our business and most other businesses and even most other charitable or philanthropic organizations. My goal is to put us out of business. Why do I want to put us out of business? Because if I can solve the problem of food waste and if I could solve the problem of hunger, you know, I didn't create us harvest to perpetuate us becoming the biggest food rescue organization in the world or in Australia. In fact, I literally started it thinking that I would solve the problem. So every way we tackle what we do is, will this support more people? You know, we, we have an education pillar and that education pillar is to shift and change our behavior around food waste. It's to help vulnerable people learn and understand how to live a sustainable life, how to cook, how not to need the organizations they go to. So it's a fascinating dilemma because 
of course, if I solve food waste, what happens to hunger? So you have to teach around not wasting food and teach vulnerable people to be more, to give them the skills, the talent and invest in them. So it's it's going to take a long time. What I've realized now is we're not going to put ourselves out of business that quickly, which is why we're investing in the education pillars, the innovation pillars, to try and see how we can tackle some of the big issues behind the core problem that we deal with. So, I mean, obviously, it's not like waving a wand um, and going, oh, it's all fixed. There's there's little wins, big wins all along the way. Have you um, solved some of those um, conduit problems or resourcing problems or um, finding ways that people don't end up in a position that they're not then in need of food? What what sort of things have you been able to accomplish in that way? So, so we take vulnerable youth and put them through a program called Nourish. So we take kids who've never had a role model or been given the opportunity or found success in the current education system. And we put them through a six-month program, which is really life skills, but also hospitality training that gives them served one and two and the ability to get a job and these kids at their graduation these are kids that would walk into our warehouse tony like this no eye contact no self-confidence no ability no one has ever told them they could be anything and they leave six months later standing at their graduation saying you've opened a door that we didn't even know existed so that gives me goosebumps because really if you want to if you ask me what still inspires me why am I still passionate why do I still do this it's because of them because I reckon everyone that's listening has got goosebumps as well yeah that's, if you can change the life of one person you know then you've saved the world because you have no idea what that one person will achieve and that's what drives me so how long has that program been going for now uh, about five years, wow. and we've put a few hundred kids through it, and it's it's extraordinary and yeah. it's powerful. And yeah, you know, you wish you could roll it out. And again, it's all about funding. And the the extraordinary thing is, Tony, it costs five thousand dollars to change a life. I mean, an investment of five thousand dollars shifts that child comes through for free. We fund that, but I mean. It's, it's mind-boggling. We're not talking about 500,000. I'm not talking about five, you know, imagine. And that's that's what our philanthropy, you know, that's what our call to action is. Every dollar you give us harvest allows us to deliver two meals to people in need. And a $5,000 investment could put a kid, could change a kid's life. What about on the, on the flip side, um, you know, a lot, a lot of our kids and a lot of us um, are completely uneducated about um, what is going on um, to those to, to those that are coming into that program and to those that you're delivering food to. I would imagine that um, not only is there educating people on how to nourish themselves, not only from a food and, and perspective, but from a thinking and a purpose perspective in terms of their life and their career, what about the rest of us who are completely ignorant? 
How, do you have programs for teenagers to come in and work with you and 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 get? I mean, I, I think I'm probably talking on, but maybe on behalf of my 17 year old son and 15 year old daughter, who yeah. um, and other parents who are listening right now, go, yeah, I really want my kids, my entitled kids, not not to say that our kids are, but um, they're they're all actually pretty are. good. If you if you're privileged, if you've got a roof over your head and a bed on your table and food on your table, a bed to sleep on and food on your table, we are entitled. Yeah. We are entitled. So we have a program called FEAST that goes into primary schools, but we're about to elevate it and put it into high schools as well. And it's it really is, I mean, the motivation for that is around the environmental and sustainability training, nutrition and eating. But through that program, we educate kids on again, how to live a sustainable life and share with them the challenges. And the beautiful thing about that program is that they take these habits back home. So so we don't have a, a program that's targeted as saying, hey guys, look what other people are going through. But subliminally through learning around sustainability and nutrition and not wasting food, and understanding how many people need food. Um, so, so that is, so through our FEAST program in primary schools, um, and that is national accredited program, we're giving both sides of the story. Mm. And so kids can message that out. As I say, it's starting in high schools. Um, but you're 100% right. Through We have a program called Kids in the Kitchen, and it's for ages up till 15, which obviously through COVID we've had to stop. But again, it was a way to get kids into our space, to share with them what we do, to share with them that kids their age, that there are in Australia, you will be shocked. And so will our listeners be shocked. Mm. Until COVID, there were 5 million Australians who need food relief at some point in their lives. It's now 6 million. And a third of those are, are youth under the age of 15. In this abundant, generous, extraordinary country. You, you, you said in their life, or do you mean every single day uh, at one, every, is that at certain times it happens or is it, how does that work? So there's a certain cohort that just need food relief every day. But there's some that through the year, you know, you lose a job, something shifts and changes, you fall through the tracks for a whole lot of reasons that may or may not be your fault. And you suddenly find that you've got to make a choice between paying rent, buying medication or feeding people, feeding your family, you know. So so through that five million, it isn't those that need food every day, but among that cohort is a huge number, three million who need food. Every yeah, day. I mean, I, I get, I get the uh, the imagery around um, falling off the tracks because just being trackless for a week, a day, two weeks, a month, and not then being able to reconnect exactly. to the other tracks on the other side can completely derail you. And, and exactly. yeah, I get that. That makes that that imagery makes a lot of sense to me. And then you're on a downward spiral. Exactly. And we've had people come to us who literally were functioning in a job. You lose your job, your, let's say, your partner 
is dis, you know decides you're out you've lost your job you can't look after me suddenly you find yourself starts with surf couching it then becomes and and how do you get back on track you know these things happen for so many reasons that often are not our own mm. so when when you think and I'm for everyone um, it, it's an enthralling conversation here with Ronnie Khan and now she has a lot of titles but now she's got a new one author and and so her new book a repurposed life when when people who have known you for many years um and they that's before Oz Harvest um and they think about oh Ronnie can't yeah yeah of course Ronnie she was always going to do something you know like that because she was always she always had a purposed life she was always with her event management and her food and 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 you probably did weddings and functions and all these other things i can only imagine that oh yeah she was a she was a you know a powerhouse and a tornado you you had to you always had to make sure you hire Ronnie Khan for your for your big christmas uh, is that how people knew you then anyway so you 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 had um that kind of um skill set or or that was your kind of intent and so then when you talk about a repurposed life it was just um it was using all the kind of innate skills that you had or were you do you feel when you think back at oh yeah right that runny can yeah boy she, um if she only applied herself the way I've done to Oz Harvest my event you know management and food business would have been like a global how, how does how does that kind of um with your friends and when you kind of do a personal review of yourself have you been pretty much the same I'm completely fundamentally different in so many ways. You know, growing up I was you know people people I think that's maybe what's also resonating with people when they do read the book because I, I was a mouse in the corner. <laughs> And what shifted and repurposed my life apart from some incidents that absolutely gave me a new world view and reconnected me to my values. was literally finding and and this is the part that I think is so important for and and why I think the book will resonate every single one of us has a purpose you know i did have a purpose i had a purpose i i first of all i grew up and i really wanted to make money that was my purpose just make money because i thought that was going to make me happy And then I had children and you your purpose is you want to feed them and you want to look after them we've all got purpose what shifts and changed and what shifted and changed for me and literally repurposed my life was realizing that I'd been asking the world what it could do for me not what I could do for the world and all of us at some point in our lives may or may not get to ask that question but when we do something fundamental for me happened and it turns out that actually for a lot of people so i've definitely always been entrepreneurial without ever knowing that you know i've landed in three different countries i've 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 made do i've made businesses i've made money i've i've shifted and changed so yeah i've always had drive in a drive but i certainly I think I think people were surprised that I could do that because I certainly surprised myself without ever stopping to think about it. Only when I wrote the book did I really think, 
wow, but I was so different then. And, and, and I think that evolution is what, what I hope people can resonate with because I wasn't born, you know, knowing that I was going to run a charity. I wasn't born knowing that I'd run a $20 million philanthropic organization. And yeah, I could have done that with my event business. I reached that point that I thought, do I want to run the biggest business and have more headaches? Or do I want to just run it as a boutique event company and make enough? And I guess that was part of that journey, saying what is enough? Mm. Wow. So so the the friends that you have from back then, though, um, are they, do they go, oh, my God, look what you've done? Or do they go, yeah, I knew you were always going to do that? What's the, how do they see it all? It's funny. A lot of them said, I always knew you were going to do that. Or, wow, look at what you know, you were always capable, but I didn't know that I could. So it's interesting if other people saw something, most of them, I think, are just in awe that I could do this as I am still in awe mm. at, at what's being created around me and feel that I'm a conduit for this, for this extraordinary program. And that... Yeah, I've been blessed to be put in this place to be doing exactly what I've landed up doing. Yeah, it's so amazing. So when when you, um, I mean, it's been obviously quite a journey from you discovering that there was an opportunity to to repurpose the food that was being wasted and, and make it um, not go to waste. But the obstacles that you've had to address along the way, is it, I assume it's not at the recipient level. It, they're, they're probably so grateful and thankful. Um, is it more um, legals, um, the fact that it's food um, and contamination, um, people get you know uh, getting sick from it or it's secondhand food, um, it, getting access to that various, the food that is sitting there being wasted and someone has a law that says, no, 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 you can't touch that because of these, you know, legal implication. Where is it is it more supply? Is it more is it more delivery? Is it more reception of that? Uh, how where how does that all kind of play out? So initially, it absolutely I had to test this notion, would people want food? And the minute I started offering them this food, it was like, oh my God, this is Christmas. This is this is gold. And again, right in that beginning, none of us realized that it could become this replacement budget. So that there was never an issue that people wanted the food. Mm. I certainly had to teach people to eat beautiful quality bread. They were used to white bread. We had to teach people, you know, what to do with aubergines or Brussels sprouts because they'd had potatoes. So there's been an education process on the recipient side. On the other side, it had never been done before that fresh produce was taken. Cooked produce, never. Dry goods, yes. Unclosed, you know, packaging that had been mislabeled, yes. Never fresh produce, never ready-made food. And the, I never saw them as obstacles. There were challenges. Just never could. I think I just was so naive. It was, here yeah, I've got food. I'm going to take it. 
when somebody the first time said, well, we can't take this food. And I said, why not? I said, well, we don't know where it's been. We don't know how it's cooked. Like it had never occurred to me to even question that because I knew that it had come out of this beautiful kitchen. Um, And so I did have to have laws changed. In Australia, we changed wow. the rules in in New South Wales, ACT, Queensland, South Australia, and the rest followed suit. There had been a good Samaritan law in Victoria, but it wasn't being used in the same way. And so having laws changed removed the major obstacle that any caterer, any food supplier, any food Anyone in the food supply chain could give food. You know, the next interesting thing really was realizing, again, the quantity, the size of the problem. And that's when I started connecting that. Actually, we were dealing with both a social issue, but an environmental one as well. Because when I started collecting food, I'd never heard that if you threw food into a garbage bin, that it was bad for the for the climate. What did we know? 17 years ago, nobody was talking about environmental issues, climate change, or certainly not lay people. Scientists knew, you know, if we'd have listened to David Attenborough then, our world might be in a different place now, and hopefully it's not too late, even though it's scary. But so suddenly when I realized, one, we were ticking two fundamental boxes that also gave us a unique positioning but then started working in that same in the same way that as much as we want to make sure that food goes to feed people we must stop it from going to waste and so in 2015 before the united nations had even announced its its sustainable development goals that you know there's 17 uns usdgs around the environment we um, pulled together a zero food waste forum got everybody from government to the food industry around the table. And in 2015, we got our then environment minister, Greg Hunt, to commit to halving food waste. Then it was by 2025, because the UN hadn't set this goal by 2030. So we have been fundamental. I have been, you know, a leader in change making but I didn't know that I was an entrepreneur I didn't know I had that in me but then you you just get taken over by the by what needs to get done yeah it's a project and I think anyone that's renovated a house or you know or, or done done something and you know, started to work on the garden in the morning and thinking they're going to be there for half an hour an hour then okay. at 5 p.m they're still there they found exactly. I didn't know those weeds were there knows what it's like to get to, to to start something and then not realize how big it is. Out of curiosity, then, the international um, um, uh, mimickers, partners, people who've come from overseas and sat down with your organization here and look what you're doing and have gone back and replicated it, or are there, were there already organically um, manifesting programs that are very similar to yours overseas and you've been able to kind of create very, very similar programs? programs what how's that all kind of playing out um you know every day we get countries call us and say can we use your model can we do and we know that our model's been replicated in dozens of countries um it's taught 
in Oxford, you know, business school have have model have looked at Oz Harvest and found it to be an an extraordinary model. So in in South Africa, we have South Africa Harvest, which is absolutely licensed. In that all our IP we've given them, so that they didn't have to reinvent the wheel, they didn't have to do anything. In in New Zealand, there's Kiwi Harvest. In the UK, UK Harvest. We've taught people from Peru to Italy to Spain to um, all all over the world. I think because we were the very, very first to create this model that you make sure you rescue the food and you deliver it. There's been food banking, this notion of a warehouse that's got produce that either sells it at very discount prices or you know, palletizes and moves it around. But nobody, there's not been the, the mobility, the agility with which we make sure that we pick up food here and we deliver it there and we do that for free. So that, that would definitely lend itself more for dry goods and other product that has a more of a longer lifespan. Life. You're, exactly. Yeah, you, you're really focusing on on things that are going to perish fairly quickly and getting it from where it's going, from where it is, right as quickly as you can through to the people that need it. Absolutely. So that you know became this very direct, immediate, you know, needing refrigerated vehicles. Our model evolved, but we certainly collect dry goods too, and we collect anything within the food supply chain from farmers to the supermarkets to wherever there is food and deliver it out to about 1,600 organizations around the country. But that model, because I, I guess we were really one of the initiators of that model, and as I say, there's so many types, people have looked at that and created their own around the world, but but then, but we've certainly had an influence and we have people from around the world visiting us and learning from us. And that's an extraordinary thing to be able to share our IP. So the other harvests in all those other countries you mentioned, are they, uh, are they connected in some sort of affiliate uh, group? Are you, do you oversee those or have they just gone and done their own thing? They're yellow and black. They look exactly like us. The brand is ours. Um, as the years have gone by, with South Africa, we're very involved in that, making sure, you know, they, they all evolve into what each country needs. But it is all about our brand and it is all about um, utilising our model. Um, and there's a very loose licence. It's not a licence. It's about we, nobody could just use our yellow and brand anywhere without deep discussions and understanding philosophically what it is we aim to achieve our programs and again using all the knowledge we have so it is a learning program but we're closest with South Africa Harvest because the challenge there is they have 19 million people a day who literally need food and it's so overwhelming and when we started there, the, the CEO there turned around and said, well, I don't know where to begin. And I just said, you begin. And if you make a difference to 100 people and that's all you ever do, then that's 100 more people that will have food. But now it's feeding millions. Is so, that right? Hmm. It's wow. only two years old, but 
through COVID, it just absolutely escalated and grew and people have started funding it and mm. and helping to, given that the challenges are so humongous there. And, and is it very, um, are all these other countries, is it a bit, you know, um, 19th century where there's a, like a, a photo and a picture of Ronnie Khan on the wall and they all stand and sing a little Ronnie, the Ronnie Khan song in the morning and <laughs> we're not worthy, we're not worthy. Like, um, or do, are, you, are you very much um, like, like it, the origins are forgotten and it's, it is its own identity or do, are you, do they know that you were the one that all started in Australia and, and they have a, a sense of its origins? It's such an interesting question. It's fascinating one. Look, there, it, we are the origin. I am the originator. <laughs> and so it, in a way, it's funny. It, it's a bit like if somebody, if you taught somebody Booktopia and they opened somewhere else and you nurtured them, <clears throat> you know, it would always be based on Booktopia. So your name would always be somewhere there. And I think certainly I'm somewhere there. <clears throat> you couldn't have a Kiwi harvest <clears throat> and you wouldn't have a UK harvest looking like it is. And they've absolutely evolved and they don't ask permission for every single thing they do. But quite honestly, the patron in the UK is Camilla, <laughs> the Duchess. And it's because she came to us harvest, loved it, saw it and said, I'd like this in the UK. Right. So, you know, there is there is a <clears throat> there is a deep link, but it's not always the most, it's not about the respect, but it's, from our points of view, the fact that it's theirs because it's us. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's great to know that <laughs> Australia had the um was the origins of and and you were the one that kind of and planted the seed and it continued yeah. to grow. Given and given the name, you know, if I think about the seed, Booktopia's name came, and I struggled with it in the beginning. I wanted to start this online store because um, we had we had done a job to get Angus and Robertson to the top yeah. of Google. I'm in business with my brother and my sister and my brother-in-law, and and we um, we had an SEO internet marketing business, and and we had got Angus and Robertson to the top of Google, and we used yeah. the same company to start Booktopia that they were using, manage our site and fulfill our orders. And I, I, I came up with the name Booktopia and the way I came up with it, I was, and I was struggling with the name. I was in a national park in New South Wales on a really hot Australian summer's day. And I turned to the person I was with and I said, oh my God, listen to those insects. They're, they were screaming at the top of their lungs. You know, it's like Insectopia. And when I said that, it's like, oh, Booktopia, that'd be a good name. Um, and of course, back in 2003, there, we didn't we didn't have, we were on dial-up modems. I couldn't look up. <laughs> You know, while I was what traveling, was. I wonder if that's available. I had to wait a whole week till the camping trip was over to, to <laughs> look at Oz Harvest. You know, and the seed was planted. How, did you did you uh, deliberate long, or how did the name come to you? It's interesting. It was a struggle. Exactly the same. What do you do? What do you call this? But shortly after, I'd been rogue rescuing and thinking about this. I by chance came across an organization in the States. I mean, it's all written in the book, so I won't go into the detail. But the truth is, I discovered that there was an organization and its name was City Harvest. There was also Angel Harvest. 
And I loved the harvest name. I loved harvest. It was like I'd been looking at harvest, thinking about we'd looked at reap, garner, um, collect, and harvest just was divine. And then what do I do first? Is it Australia? We looked at us. I looked at Australia harvest, Aussie harvest, as in A-U-S-S-I-E. And then suddenly landed on, well, one, the Wizard of Oz yellow brick road <laughs> kind of at some point connected. It was like Oz is just that larrikin word, the word we call ourselves, you know, the land of Oz, Oz harvest. And it looked funny in the beginning. And our original logo isn't the same as this. And I had a, a, a student design again the first logos or you know an apple or this or that a piece of food a piece of bread and then I figured but it's all about transport we're actually a logistics company we're all about making sure that good food goes from one place to another so then it was the little vehicle and it still has the vehicle but you know and then it once I landed on Oz Harvest it was just like yep that's it mm. yeah what a it's always an interesting um, journey to come up with the yeah. name of your organization, especially if you feel like uh, there is there is a sense of certainty around it and getting that right. I, I remember for Booktopia, it was like I wanted I wanted to be able to come up with a name that um, was unique, um, yes. and that when you said it, people when they spe when they spelt it, they got it right. You know, ninety five percent of the time. Yeah. And and I saw a lot of other names that were really quirky with. You know, silent letters and double letters and a number, in, and it's just like I don't want that. I want it to be really easy for, for people to repeat. We're coming uh, to the end of our time together, Ronnie, and and as I say, it's plugged and unplanned. So uh, we've gone on a on a very uh, interesting and fun journey to explore some of the things we've talked about. But is there anything perhaps that you, when you reflect on what we covered, the that we maybe haven't spoken about, and you thought, oh, I thought we would talk about this or um, or that you, you know, you think, oh, I'd, I really like to share this with the people, perhaps maybe about the book or about you or about inspiring them, whatever, whatever you feel. We so I love unplugged and unplanned because anytime people think I prepare for an interview, it's like, what am I going to prepare? <laughs> you know, all I've got is me and all I've got is my story. I think the most important thing, Tony, that I'd love people to know in reading my book or thinking about reading my book. We've all got a story. Every single one of us, those of us who don't think we have, we've all got a story. Some of it might never be written down. It's not about what's written. It's about recognizing and acknowledging within ourselves in ourselves that we don't have to look anywhere else, either for purpose or for a story. All we have to do is look in the mirror. And all we have to do is be the very, very best we can be. And that's what I hope by sharing my story, people will get. Well, it's it's actually, in a way, I wanted the story not to be about me, but about what's possible. And and I think, you know, I, we've shared today about Oz Harvest, which which really has been this extraordinary vehicle. It's just been and is it is such an important part of my life. But it, it's, it's by chance that I created that. And nobody else has to think that they have to create a charity in order to 
find their purpose or to fulfill themselves. We just have to be kind to the world, kind to the planet, kind to people. And therein lies such a huge satisfaction. And kind to ourselves and gentle on ourselves and not be so hard on ourselves. And so I think that's the overriding message. And what I've been most gratified about, you know, initially, I didn't want this book to be thought of as chiclet. And I'm getting so many messages and, and emails and from men from young men, from older guys, from corporates reading the book and saying, I've marked pages. It's fundamentally opened my eyes. And and that's gratifying because I never wanted it to just be one demographic. And I think it is a book for all. And, And I hope that people get, if you get one thing out of it, that's awesome. If you just enjoy reading it, if you see how somebody's bared themselves. raw and naked and you know what i've survived it (laughs) yeah congratulations it's it's such a pleasure to have you on the program and and congrats on everything that your organization has accomplished i know your organization is not you it's much bigger than you and Mm. that's uh that's one of the things i've learned uh with booktopia as well um it's got it's got its own its own life um and it's spreading all over the world and um, not like a pandemic, but um, hopefully in <laughs> pandemic proportions. Um, <laughs> not, I love not, it. A, not a great yeah, analogy. But, so careful with that word. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. But uh, but you have it's it's contagious in terms of um, the, all the goodwill that it's bringing. So so, congrats, and of course to those that have listened, uh, uh, you can log on to Booktopia, go into your local bookstore, grab a copy. Uh, Ronnie Khan, A Repurposed Life. And we look forward to to hearing of the future successes of yourself and also of the organization that you've built. Thanks, Ronnie. Thank you so much, Tony. I love what you do. I love how you bring books to people right into their living room. And just thank you for that. It's a blessing. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia. Australia's local bookstore at booktopia.com.au